0: Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Happy to be here. so the, the title of my, of my lecture is uh, Unity and Diversity in Post-Vatican II, Catholic Theology, the Perspective of Pope Francis. Um, so the question I, the question I address uh, today is how does Pope Francis account for legitimate theological diversity and, um, within a fundamental unity of truth? And uh, to a large extent, I think he answers this question in light of what I think the legacy of Vatican II is, uh, and I'll make that clear right now. Um, and I think, I think it's important to understand that legacy in order to understand the theological structure, such as it is of Francis's pontificate. So the legacy the legacy I think is uh, what I call the, the Lenarian legacy, which is the legacy that 's indebted to Vincent of Lorenz and you 'll see why uh, the Lorenian legacy is arguably based on the distinction between unchanging truth and its historically conditioned formulations there's a distinction that can be drawn between form and content between the truth content of uh, of uh, uh, theological statements and the context in which those statements are articulated. Uh, In short, it's the distinction between propositions and sentences. This distinction was invoked by John XXIII in his opening address at Vatican II. So you may all, you may, everybody may know that he said this, although there is some controversy, but I won't get into that in terms of the Italian and the Latin and all this, but it's not for us here. But he said this for the deposit of faith, the truths contained in our sacred teaching are one thing. The mode in which they are expressed, and then there's this parenthetical clause, but with a uh, subordinate clause rather, but with the same meaning and the same judgment is another thing. So you have the distinction between the the, the, the dogmatic truths. Uh, and their formulations, linguistic, conceptual formulations. And in between that, there's the, the point that when you express something uh, differently, uh, you have to be saying the same thing. You, you can say it differently, but you're not saying something different. And so that, so that the same meaning and the same judgment about what it is that's being asserted, affirmed, has to be kept. Focusing on the distinction between propositions and sentences, we may say that different sentences may express the same proposition. It's possible to say that it's raining in a variety of languages, in Spanish, English, Swahili, Vietnamese, whatever. You're still saying the same thing, and, uh, but you're saying it in a different language. Or you could say use uh, 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 different sentences from the same language system. Um, the subordinate clause in this passage is part of a larger passage. So the subordinate clause is keeping the same meaning in the same judgment. Edem uh, sensu, idem que sententio. Huh? Uh, keeping the same meaning in the same judgment. The subordinate clause in this passage is part of a larger passage from Vatican I, from the dogmatic constitution on, on the Catholic Church, Dei Filius of Vatican I, remember 1869, 1870. And this passage that Vatican I quoted... Which is the passage that John XXIII quoted, is itself from the Commonatorium Primum of uh, Vincent of Lorenz, Saint Vincent of Lorentz, a 5th-century monk who was also a great theologian, um, where Vincent says this, and this is quoted by, um, by Vatican I. Okay. This is the context of John XXIII's quote. And this is As you'll see, this is the the Lorenian legacy of Vatican II. Therefore, said Vincent, let there be growth and abundant progress in understanding, knowledge and wisdom in each and all, in individuals, and in the whole church, at all times, and in the progress of ages, but only with the proper limits, that is, within the same dogma, the same meaning, and the same judgment. Now, um, the crucial point here is, is that about the uh, meaning invariance, that meaning doesn't change, huh? and hence unchanging truth. And as John Twenty Third put it, to transmit the doctrine pure and integral, without any attenuation or distortion, which throughout 20 centuries, notwithstanding difficulties and contrasts, he says, has become the common patrimony of men. Now, of course, John was not simply urging the council to repeat what everyone already knew. This is another important aspect of the council. John was also, like Vincent, understood that there was a difference between development and change. Vincent says he calls for progress and understanding, but he says progress, development, is something different than change. Change is when, something, when one thing becomes something else. Progress, development in our understanding, has to remain within the boundaries of the dogma, keeping the same meaning and the same judgment. When it becomes something else, then you have change. You know, it's like saying, for instance, uh, to give an example that uh, Cardinal Muller, the the prefect for the CDF in his book on the the family, said the difference between development and change would be if we we decided, for instance, uh, which is impossible, uh, if, we, if, we, if we decided to, to say that same-sex marriage is just a development of the church's teaching on marriage. No. He says that's not a development, that's a change in the church's teaching on marriage because you're not... If, if at the heart of the church's teaching on marriage is, uh, is not only permanence, not only um, exclusivity, that it's two, but sexual differentiation... Uh, if that's a fundamental prerequisite for the two becoming one flesh, a one flesh union, then, of course, if sexual differentiation is a prerequisite and that's that's at the essence of marriage, then, of course, same-sex couples, that's not a a development. Then you've changed the understanding of marriage, you see. You're not developing any longer. Um, But... Back to the point about uh, the other aspect of the council, wasn't uh, the, the concern, uh, uh, John was not simply urging the council to repeat what everyone already knew. Uh, what is needed, he said, is that this doctrine is more fully and more profoundly known and that minds be more fully imbued and formed by it. Uh, uh, Father Bernard Lonigan in, in, in his more reliable uh, 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 times, uh, remarks here regarding the intention of John Twenty-Third in calling the council. He says, there was no point, he said, in their gathering together merely to repeat what anyone could find in familiar theological handbooks. Indeed, what is needed is that this certain and unchangeable doctrine to which loyal submission is due be investigated and presented in the way demanded by our times. So, The way demanded by our times in order to we have to you know the the two uh, chief themes of the council uh, resource amount you know going back to the authoritative sources of the faith going back to the well you know drinking deeply at the word of god and the the teachings of the church uh, so that we could more effectively then address the, the 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 needs of the times the issues of the time the challenges of the time Aggiornamento, you know, crudely translated as updating, that was never an isolated motive for renewal. It wasn't that the church said we have to change. No, we have to understand the gospel, the sources of the faith, the authoritative sources of the faith more deeply so that we can be more more effective, present a more effective uh, uh, understanding of the gospel. Now, therefore, to carry out this task faithfully and respons- responsibly, John calls this council to distinguish between unchanging truth and its formulation, or as Father Lonergan remarks, between the unchanging deposit of faith and the changing modes of its presentation. Remember, and then there's that subordinate clause keeping the same meaning and the same judgment. So, and, and of course, at the end of the day, the church has the authority to determine you know, whether the same meaning and the same judgment has been kept. You can't just say something differently and then claim that it has the same meaning and the same judgment. You have to actually show that the same meaning and the same judgment, that there's going to be material continuity. Um, So again, yet those new formulations must keep the same meaning and the same judgment. This distinction is crucial for understanding the continuity and material identity of dogma over time. Now, I think, and I tried to show that in my book on Pope Francis and the Legacy of Vatican II. Pope Francis stands in the Lorenian Legacy of Vatican II. And this is not an inference on my part. I mean, he, uh, I, I read widely in pre, pre-papal stuff, and even in papal stuff and addresses, you know. You can, he, he explicitly appeals to Vincent of Lorraine at crucial points. Um, for example, in his recent encyclical Laudato Si, he explicitly appeals to Vincent after the following statement. He says Christianity, in fidelity to its own identity and the rich deposit of truth, so this is not Vincent, this is Pope Francis, and the rich deposit of truth which it has received from Jesus Christ, continues to reflect on contemporary issues in fruitful dialogue with changing historical situations. In doing so, it reveals its eternal newness. Uh, In his recent address that he gave via video to the International Theological Congress held at the Pontifical University of Buenos Aires, this is September uh, 1st, a a little more more than a year ago, Pope Francis looks again to Vincent, uh, as in the encyclical Laudato Si, in his address to the International Congress, he cites from Vincent's work in Latin, but I'll give you the English translation of the clauses he, he selects, uh, setting them within the context. So, he, so this is what Vincent said, and in that context, there's a, a, a sentence that Pope Francis quotes. So Vincent says, thus it behooves the dogma of the Christian religion too, to observe these laws of progress. It, the Christian religion, may be, and this is what Francis quotes, consolidated years, expanded with time, grow loftier with age. Yet, Vincent says, must remain incorrupt and undefiled. It may attain to fullness and perfection in all the proportion of its parts, and as it were, in all its proper members and senses, but can admit nothing more in the way of change, can suffer no loss of any property, no variation in its definition. And then Vincent explains... Well, actually, no, Francis explains. The theologian who is satisfied, Francis says, with his complete and conclusive thought. Now, a lot of people get nervous here. With uh, with his complete and conclusive thought is mediocre, says Francis. The good theologian and philosopher has an open, that is, an incomplete thought. Always open to the maius of God, to the greatness of God and of the truth. Always in development, according to the law that Vincent describes as, again... Uh, the, uh, that, the that 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 the understanding may be consolidated with years, expanded with time, and grow loftier with age uh, or to use his translation, it is strengthened over the years, it expands over time, it deepens with age. This is the theologian who has an open mind now. As I argued in my book, doctrinally correct formulations or expressions of revealed truth do not completely or adequately express divine truth. Now, that doesn't mean that that the expressions are not true. It just means that we can continue to deepen our understanding. You know, at the Council of Chalcedon regarding the uh, the person of Christ, that there was uh, uh, one divine person with two natures, that wasn't the last council. After that, there were other councils having to do with because other issues came up having to do with the full humanity of Christ. So even though a council may, may uh, affirm the truth, such as in the case of Chalcedon, of who Christ is, the person of Christ, and the natures of Christ, that didn't mean that, that, that everything was said, that needed to be said. Other questions arose, so we had subsequent councils affirming the humanity of Christ. Uh, We can't say, for instance, if we jump to the 16th century, the Council of Trent, we can't say, for instance, that Trent said everything that there needs to be said as to how you worthily uh, celebrate the sacraments in faith. You have to read documents, conciliar decrees, uh, encyclicals. You have to read them in their historical context, which doesn't mean that they're only true in that context. Uh, But sometimes they can be one-sided, and and so they need to be amplified, deepened. Uh, We need to work on it, you know. Uh, If you read the encyclicals of Leo XIII, he rejected religious liberty. When we get to Vatican II, Vatican II affirms religious liberty in the decree on religious liberty. Are we to think think that somehow uh, there's a contradiction there? No, you have to. No, I don't think so. Uh, but you have to work at showing uh, the continuity, the material continuity. What is it that, if you try to understand the historical context of what what Leo is saying, and and, uh, it seems to me you can show that there's continuity there. Uh, And the same thing, you know, you can can give many examples of this. You know, 1928, uh, Pius XI in Mortalium Animus rejects ecumenism, well, Vatican II embraces ecumenism. John, John Paul II utunum sint embraces ecumenism. Are we just to think that there's just contradiction there? Uh, no. The, you know, neither neither John Paul or Benedict or you know thought that Vatican II was contradictory or contradicting past teaching and so on. But you have to read these documents in historical context so that you can then go on to affirm, you know, that there's a there's a, a fundamental continuity, material continuity as to as to what's being asserted as to the truth of those documents and that's what um, I think that's part of what uh, no, the Pope Francis doesn't work it out, but I think when he says you know when he says uh, you know the good theologian and philosopher has an open that is an incomplete thought, I think that just that's his way of saying that even uh, doctrinally correct formulations or expressions of revealed truth do not completely or, or adequately exhaustively grasp divine truth, that we can continue to deepen our understanding of that truth. But whatever else you say has to be consistent with what we already affirmed to be the case. Okay, you, can't just, you can't say, well, now we're saying something that's contradictory to what we previously asserted or previously affirmed. Um, So, um, this doesn't mean, again, inadequacy of expression does not mean that such formulations are false. No. Nor does it mean that truth itself is inexpressible. No. No, no. Okay. Um, Such formulations have a truth-conveying status, meaning thereby that what is asserted in them is objectively true, that they refer to reality. But that doesn't mean that at any given time we know everything that there is to know. We can know something truly without knowing it exhaustively. But as we continue to deepen our understanding of what we know truly, even if not yet exhaustively, what we now know has to be consistent with what we already know. You can't... Remember, it has to keep the same meaning and the same judgment. We can't say... Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Peter repeats that in the Acts of the Apostles, that there's no name other than the name of Jesus by which men can be saved. St. Paul tells Timothy that there's only one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. So when we go on to reflect on the question, what about the fate of the unevangelized? Well, we can't come to the conclusion there that, well, no, there are other names by which men can be saved. Or, no, there are more more than one mediator. Or, no, it's not just Jesus who's the way to the Father. No. No. Whatever we, however we deepen our understanding, however we reply to that question, what about the fate of the unevangelized? it has to be consistent with what we already know, what's already been revealed to us, not only in Scripture, because those are revealed truths, but also in the church's teaching, etc. So there has to be this continuity, this keeping the same meaning and the same judgment, even as we deepen our understanding of those truths. Most recently, Francis has put... This point about the openness of dogmas to being reformulated, expressing the classical dynamic of faith-seeking understanding, by contrasting the idea of a closed system of Christian doctrine, closed system that means that there's only one way to say it, can't say it any other way. You know, uh, when 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 Ratzinger became pope, you could go onto websites that say 75 heresies in Joseph Ratzinger's Fundamentals of Catholic Theology. Why? Because Ratzinger was not a Thomist, and so people thought that the only way to say things was through the, the you know, the concepts and words of St. Thomas. If you're saying it differently, people immediately assume, since they, they think that there's only one way to say, only one way to say, say it. They think that you're, you're a heretic. That was uh, that was the judgment that some people came to about about Joseph Ratzinger. You know, disputes about John Paul II. You know, yes, he, in his encyclical, Fides Ratio he talked about the enduring originality of St. Thomas, but the fact is, John Paul II also learned from, you know, continental philosophical movements, phenomenology, hermeneutics, and so on. Um, Still. What I have called the dynamic orthodoxy to which Francis alludes to here, highlighted inadequacy of expression, however, does not mean inexpressibility of doctrinal truth or the denial of the material continuity of Christian truth over time. For dogmatic formulations, so the true status of dogmatic formulations are such that they must bear some determinative relationship to truth itself, unless you have a view of unless you have a view that language has no proper referencing function to reality. Huh? Which, of course, if you have that view, then you can't really do justice to dogmas. You can't do justice to the Bible. Uh, if we were to understand Francis properly, here, too, we must look at, as Pope Francis consistently does to the words of John twenty-third that are already cited, uh, he looks again to, to Vincent's desire that the tradition may be consolidated with years, expanded with time, grow loftier with age, as he says. Like Vincent in John XXIII, Pope Francis urges the theological transmission of revelation to be pure and integral, without any attenuation or distortion of doctrine. As he writes in Evangelii Gaudium in paragraph 8, whenever we make the effort to return to the sources of faith, and to recover the original freshness of the gospel, new avenues arise, new paths of creativity open up, he says, with, with different forms of expression. It's not different truths. It's different forms of expression. More eloquent signs and words with new meaning for today's world. Every form of authentic evangelization is always new, he says. Now, it's my contention that Francis intuitively, I don't say... He's not a philosopher, uh, nor even, in some sense, he's not a systematic theologian. So I don't say that he explicitly uh, understands this. But I think he has an intuitive understanding that propositions, propositions being the content of thoughts that are true or false, expressible in various languages, but more than mere words, expressing possible and, if true, actual states of affairs, do not vary as the language in which they are expressed varies. Propositions are not linguistic entities. In sum, a belief is true if and only if what it asserts is in fact the case about objective reality, otherwise it's false. And to make this point, Pope Francis appeals here again in this address and elsewhere to John XXIII's words at Vatican II distinguishing between unchanging truth and formulations. Particularly important in considering Francis' understanding of the relationship between doctrinal truth and pastoral practice is the already cited passage Uh, that I gave earlier from Laudato Si in paragraph 121. Again, this is Francis' call to return to the sources, that is, resorcement. Accordingly, he rejects an opposition between doctrine and pastoral practice as a false approach. He says in his address to the International Theological Congress, we not infrequently, he says, identify doctrine with conservatism and antiquity, and on the contrary, we tend to think of pastoral Ministry in terms of adaptation, reduction, accommodation, as if they had nothing to do with each other. A false opposition is generated, he says, between theology and pastoral ministry, between Christian reflection and and Christian life. The attempt to overcome this divorce, he says, between theology and pastoral ministry, between faith and life, was indeed one of the main contributions of Vatican II. Briefly, the way to avoid this dilemma he says, is through reflection, through discernment, taking very seriously both the church's tradition and today's reality, bringing uh, both into dialogue. Furthermore, Francis resists the implication that this this dialogical strategy means adapting or accommodating the tradition to today's standards. The pastoral context is not an isolated motive for renewal. Renewal is rather about transmitting the tradition today in its eternal newness, Yes, the deposit of faith given in the church's teaching is greater than its formulations, but its new formulations must be understood in harmony with the unchanging truths of the tradition. Um, let, me, let me go on here to just to say a few words about uh, Vincent and then I want to contrast this Linarian approach to unity and diversity with, with what uh, now has often been called a, um, a pastoral approach to doctrine. Uh, you remember I said that uh, uh, Vincent distinguishes between progress and change, the import of which is not lost on Francis, who, like Vincent, compares the transmission of faith with, with biological categories, biological development of man. Hence, must, development must be organic and homogeneous. Vincent writes, but it, progress of religion, must be such as may be truly a progress of the faith, not a change. For when each several thing is improved in itself, that is progress, but when a thing is turned out of one thing into another, that is change, he says. In other words, the import here of this distinction is that developments can never mean a substantial transformation, a change in the very essence of church teaching, Uh, Father Guarino says here, the theologians of Lorenz and Francis very carefully balance growth and preservation. Vincent distinguishes between progress and change. Regarding the former, he understands the development of faith as progress that is organic and homogeneous and occurring within the boundaries of dogma. In other words, the faith remains identical with itself in its progress. He distinguishes this idea of development from another in which an understanding of, of, of faith's development involves a thing being turned out of one thing into another, that is, of change, as, as Vincent says. The point here is made clear by Vincent. Progress in understanding may, re, may result in new modes of expression, but such expressions are authentic and legitimate only if they keep the same meaning and the same judgment. In other words, the same datum of faith is said in different ways. In short, truth is unchangeable. Development of dogma is not a development of truth or a change in church's teaching, but a development in the church's understanding of the truth. So my conclusion at this point is to say that uh, Pope Francis is a man of the council. In particular, he stands with John XXIII, who framed the question regarding the nature of doctrinal continuity in light of the Lorenian principle, which was received and affirmed by Vatican I, Namely, that doctrine must progress according to the same meaning and the same judgment. Remember that Latin phrase, idem sensu idem quae sententia. Allowing for legitimate pluralism, legitimate diversity uh, within a fundamental unity of truth. Now, we can take a breath, a breather for a second. I'll drink some water. Still, there is another stream of thought in Pope Francis' addresses and writings that, that suggest he would be amenable to a so-called pastoral orientation of doctrine, as uh, Richard uh calls it. On Francis's view, says Goliarditz, doct- doctrine is always at the service of the fundamental Christian message. Francis says that some people just want the the church to indoctrinate, to rubber stamp, he says, its teaching about marriage and family. Indeed, to take, this was at the concluding uh, address of the Synod of 2015, uh, to take dead stones to be hurled at others. Uh, Typical of Francis is to express an objection to what he perceives to be views that are dogmatic or rigid, and he claims expressive of legalism, self-righteousness, and in response to such a view, Francis says, quote, The synod experience also made us better realize that the true defenders of doctrine are not those who uphold its letter, but its spirit, he says. Not ideas, but people. Not formula, but the gratuitous of God's love and forgiveness. Here we find a set of contrasts, you know, letter versus spirit, ideas versus people, and formula versus love and forgiveness. What does he mean? Who knows? But what does he mean? <laughs> Just joking. What does he mean? Uh, he doesn't say here. But throughout his pontificate thus far, characteristic of Francis's criticisms of the legalists as he understands him are such statements as this. Quote, their hearts closed to God's truth, clutch only at the truth of the law, taking it by the letter. Early on in his pontificate, we find such criticisms of the legalists. Francis says... Quote, this is the path that Jesus teaches us, totally opposite to that of the doctrines of the law. And it's this path from love and justice that leads to God. Instead, the other path, he says, of being attached only to the laws, to the letter of the laws, or you could add the letter of the doctrine, leads to closure, leads to egoism, self-righteousness. The path that leads from love to knowledge and discernment to total fulfillment leads to holiness, salvation, and the encounter with Jesus. Instead, the other path leads to egoism, the arrogance of considering oneself to be in the right to that so-called holiness of appearances. Right? As the Pope, you know, the Pope has these little gestures. He adds, do not measure salvation in the constrictions of legalism, he says. Now, of course, Um, with all due respect to the Holy Father, the problem with with statements like this is that it seems to set up an opposition between the gospel and the law, in particular the moral law or moral doctrine. Surely the Pope knows that God's moral law proposes to us what is good for us in living life in Christ. Um, The Catechism says the moral law is the work of divine wisdom. Now whatever must be said about the moral law and salvation... Pope Francis, unfortunately, has obscured the vital point that the law is, as St. Paul teaches, holy, just, and good. Furthermore, the Pope's overall emphasis on legalism is such that he never addresses the antithesis of legalism, which is antinomianism, you know, antinomianism, the Greek word nomos, you know, law. So being against the law, people who think, people who think that... Um, you know, that they're not under the law. I mean, St. Paul dealt dealt with this in in Galatians, you know, the letters of the Galatians. He wasn't only dealing with the Judaizers. He was dealing with antinomians, people who thought that in Christ you were above the law, that you were not bound to the Ten Commandments, moral precepts, and so on. Um, So, you know, it's not just, it's not just the, uh, you know, even if we think, yeah, there are legalists, Certainly, the overwhelming majority of people in our culture, even, in the, even many people in the church, are antinomians uh, because they minimize uh, the place of the moral law, moral precepts. They're either you know, moral subjectivists or they're moral relativists. Moreover, Francis, again, with all due respect, he never actually addresses the question, if the moral law is good, then what is its place in the Christian life? One thing is clear... And here I quote the Lutheran David Iago, uh, what one cannot find in St. Paul is any suggestion that grace and the gospel stand over against the law as the abrogation of God's will, that we, that we be truly righteous. That we be truly righteous. Um, but what's the relationship uh, what's the relationship between the gospel and the law? I'm not going to address that here. I just, I just throw that out because I think it's an, it's an issue. It's a problem, but it, it feeds the minds of those who think that the Pope is, uh, uh, you know, uh, pushing the church in the direction of a pastoral approach to doctrine. In particular, if we're talking about moral doctrine. What this means here is that, it, is that the church... Uh, For Francis, at least on this reading, seeks to mediate to the world not just doctrines, but chiefly the living word of God. Yes, the Pope warns against reducing doctrines to a set of abstract and static theories, as he says, and in that sense urges the pastoral purpose of doctrines. Yes, he urges, he says, theology and pastoral care go together, a theological doctrine that cannot be guiding and shaping the evangelizing purpose and pastoral care of the church is just as unthinkable as a pastoral care that does not know the treasure of revelation and tradition with a view to better understanding and transmission of the faith still sometimes francis expresses himself about doctrines that can that can sound anti-doctrinal a representative example of such statements is found in amoris laetitia the the apostolic exhortation uh, he claims that, quote, at times, we, the church, have also proposed a far too abstract and almost artificial theological ideal of marriage, from, from, uh, removed, uh, far removed from the concrete situations and practical possibilities of real families. He speaks here of, an quote, an excessive idealization, especially when we have failed to inspire trust in God's grace. Now, we, There's a lot to say about that. Uh, but and I've written about it, but I'm not going to talk about it here. Particularly the problematic uh, uh, chapter, chapter eight of Amoris Laetitia, paragraphs three hundred three, three hundred four, and three hundred five. Francis adds, "This has not helped to make marriage more desirable and, and attractive, but quite the opposite," he says. Speaking of situations common in our culture that contradict the Church's teaching on marriage, Francis says the Church must refrain quote from imposing straightway Straight away, he says, a set of rules that only lead people to feel judged and abandoned by the very mother call to show them God's mercy. Rather than offering the healing power of grace in the light of the gospel message, some would, he says, indoctrinate that message, turning it into, again, dead stones to be hurled at others. I think, in short, there's a discernible pattern of expression in Pope Francis' homilies and speeches that I readily acknowledge, give a measure of support to the so-called pastoral approach to doctrine, which I'm now going to define. What is a pastoral approach to doctrine? Well, again, uh, there are many people to cite here, but one of them is Richard Gallier. uh, You know, that's how I pronounce his name. I'm told that that's not how he pronounces it, but but the way he pronounces it, I can't make sense of. So, you know... People have trouble pronouncing my last name, Echeveria, but Echeveria sounds like Echeveria. Okay. (laughs) Vatican II offered a new way, says Gallier, of thinking about doctrine. It presented doctrine as something that always needed to be interpreted and appropriated in a pastoral key, he says. This is in his book on Vatican II. This is why he, Francis doesn't think he is compromising on doctrine when he suggests we may need a more compassionate pastoral response to the divorce and civilly remarried. Being pastoral, in short, is not a matter of overlooking doctrine. It is how pastoral style makes doctrinal substance meaningful and transformative, he says. Doctrines change when pastoral contexts shift and new insights emerge such that particular doctrinal formulations no longer mediate the saving message of God's transforming love. Doctrinal change, doc- doctrines changes, doctrine changes when the church has leaders and teachers who are not afraid to take note of new context and emerging insight. And yet, the, the problem with Galliard's pastoral approach to doctrine is that it tends to reduce the content of the faith to its purpose. And this is, I don't think this is Francis' view. In fact, like John the XXIII, he calls for the preservation, uh, that is Francis, of the integrity of the faith. He explains this very delicate task, John wrote, is to safeguard the right of the people of God to receive the deposit of faith in its purity and integrity. So I think that Francis' thought is more complex than Galliard's claims, and that properly understood this pastoral orientation as... as, as uh, as Francis understands it, is consistent with the Linarian perspective. Um, let me, let me uh, go on a little bit further here with the pastoral perspective, just to, to make abundantly clear why, in fact, it's, I, I don't think it's consistent with Vatican II, I don't think it's consistent with the Linarian legacy, and in the end, I don't think it's consistent all things considered with what Pope Francis has said. And I want to get at that by asking the question, can there be doctrinal unity in pastoral, in pastoral plurality or pastoral diversity? This is the burning question that was debated at the recent 2014-2015 synodical meetings on marriage and family. You know, people saying, well, yes, we have to hold on to the marriages indissolubility, permanence, and so on, uh, but we can have pastoral practice uh, that's, well, that seems to be at odds with that. During the, those meetings, different views on the precise meaning of the word pastoral came to light. Uh, what, what, what then does pastoral mean? Well, just briefly, I mean pastoral. If you look at uh, Rotzinger, Joseph Rotzinger's book Theological Highlights of Vatican II, he says pastoral means that we're that we we're not uh, we're not focused on, you know, the the the, the condemnation of. Uh, Condemnatory claims. You know, we want to present the gospel as life affirming. We we can't just say no, no, no. That's wrong. That's wrong. We have to present. Ratzinger says uh, the full truth of the gospel. We have to make people understand that the gospel is life affirming. That the teachings of the church on marriage, family, sexual morality these are life affirming truths. Pastoral in 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 one sense. Um, Pastoral also may also mean to affirm that the preaching of the word of God should come before doctrine. And hence, pastoral is not about the application of doctrine. Pastoral then has priority, such that the church has to mediate to the world not just doctrine, but the living Christ, uh, as, uh, as Lonergan put it. The task of the church, he said, is the kerygma, announcing the good news, preaching the gospel. That preaching is pastoral. It is the concrete reality. From it, one may abstract doctrines, and theologians may work the doctrines into conceptual systems, but the doctrines and systems, however valuable and true, are but the skeleton of the original message. So in that sense, you're you're presenting the living Christ, the living word of God. Um, But there's a third meaning of pastoral. See, I think we can accept both those first two meanings. The third meaning is, is, is where the problem is. Because the third meaning of pastoral uh, is historicist in meaning. Historicism is a view that denies the enduring validity of truth. It denies that truth is enduringly valid, that it's universal objective, that it has to do with the truth about reality. On, On this outlook, both truth itself and its formulations are subject to reform and a what some people call a perpetual hermeneutic. A perpetual hermeneutic is that you're 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 consistently reinterpreting. You're reinterpreting. You're just reinterpreting. You just go on to reinterpret. You know, so you can never actually say this is true. Period. You know, it's just a reinterpretation of someone else's interpretation of someone else's interpretation of somebody else's interpretation, and so on. And so a the third meaning of pastoral, then, I think, is historicist in meaning, because both truth itself and the formulations are subject to reform and a perpetual process of interpretation, uh, namely, the deposit of faith given in the Church's dogmatic teaching that John XXIII held in light of his Linarian perspective to be at once meaning invariant and hence unchanging on the one hand, and the expressions and formulations of those teachings in the course of time on the other, well, those two, that distinction is collapsed. It's collapsed, so there's no longer unchanging truth. Huh. Unfortunately, this is precisely what one finds in recent interpretations such as Richard Gallierdet uh, and others um, of uh, Pope, Pope John XXIII's distinction between truth and its formulations. The Lenarian point about meaning invariance, that meaning doesn't change and hence unchanging truth, keeping the same meaning in the same judgment, is mistranslated and misinterpreted, misrepresented and so on. Um, Gallier does for one, then historicizes, it's a big word, but all it means is that you're denying the enduring validity of truth. Uh, you historicize the meaning and truth of dogma by expanding the meaning of pastoral. So here's a passage Uh, Galliardet cites uh, uh, an Irish theologian, John O'Brien, to explain this historist's view that underpins the claim that doctrine has a pastoral orientation. So John O'Brien says, the pastoral had regained with John XXIII its proper standing as something far more than mere application of doctrine, but as the very context from which doctrines emerge the very condition of the possibility of doctrine, the touchstone for the validity of doctrine, and the always prior and posterior praxis which doctrines at most attempts to sum up, safeguard, and transmit. According to Theobald, uh, a Jesuit uh, also has written on this, the the principle of pastorality at Vatican II, um, uh, pa- uh, pastoral means uh, historical, historicist. Now, the above statement of O'Brien is saying much more than, than the specific formulation of doctrine represents an acknowledgement that doctrine is always historically conditioned. Yes, if you read, if you, if you, well, if you've ever tried to teach uh, you know, the Nicene Creed that we say every Sunday, it it's comes with uh, concepts, you know, or Chalcedon, nature, person, you know, homo, Usian, not homoi usian, all these kind of things. So to get to get people to understand these concepts, they're not immediately transparent to the human mind. You have to work at trying to understand what they mean. But at some point, these these uh, decrees make judgments. They say this is true, P- period. Period. This is true. Period. Not this is true now. You know, if you're a historicist, then you think it's it was only true when it was said. You see. It's the utterances fallacy that somehow something is going to be true only in the context in which it was said, you see, as opposed to being permanently true, uh, true forever, uh, unchangeable, and so on. So that's all rejected. That's all rejected. Uh, It's also saying much more than, quote, the interpretation of church doctrine requires knowledge of the specific historical context in which it was first formulated and in which it is being appropriated. These two points are correct but particularly relevant only in respect of the conditions under which we come to know that something is true. But those conditions are distinct from the conditions under which something is true. Uh, um, I think the above passage blurs that because it suggests that somehow something is true only in the context in which it's uttered, as opposed to it being permanently true. And so it questions the true status so let me let me uh, uh, summarize because I just I do want to leave a few moments uh, if anybody has uh, uh, any questions. Uh, in sum, what what I've been saying in contrast to the pastoral approach to dogma is that a dogma's meaning is unchangeable because that meaning is true. If one denies that, uh, if one denies that when the meaning is true, then uh, then what is meant is in fact the case. Um, that is that uh, that the truths of faith are, if true, always and everywhere true. And if you don't distinguish that from the different ways of expressing these truths, you're going to you're going to uh, become a, a historicist or a relativist about dogma, doctrine, uh, and you're going to think that uh, truth. You're going to deny the enduring validity of these of, of these things. You're going to deny the enduring validity of. of uh, Conciliar decrees you're going to deny the enduring validity of the catechism of the Catholic Church one of the you know when the catechism was being circulated before it was actually published one of the objections to the catechism was precisely how can we have a catechism that purports to be enduringly valid universally true not just for people you know now but later on or people in other parts of the world etc. This conclusion brings us back to John XXIII's famous Lorenian perspective. Uh, The deposit or the truths of faith contained in our sacred teaching are one thing, while the mode in which they are enunciated, keeping the same meaning and the same judgment, is another. As I said earlier, it seems obvious that John is distinguishing here between the propositional truths of faith and their linguistic expression. This seems even more obvious in light of the point that the linguistic expressions of the truths of faith must keep the same meaning and the same judgment. If one grasps what a proposition means and judges that proposition to be true, one knows what it is asserting to be true about reality itself. You know, the only reason to, the only reason to be a Christian is because it's true. The only reason to say the Nicene Creed every, you know, every Sunday is because it's true. Huh? If, if you don't think it's true, then you better stop saying it. In this light... In this light, uh, to end with that question, can there can then doctrinal unity? Uh, can there be doctrinal unity in pastoral plurality? In principle, yes, but only in light of Vatican II's Lorenian legacy of a pluralism that is commensurable. So, the plurality of pastoral practices must have their limits. That is, they cannot be contradictory with the fundamental creedal and doctrinal affirmations of faith, but rather must be commensurate with them. So. On the whole, I think Pope Francis is a Linarian. Uh, if you, as I said, if you read my book, you'll see that, you know, I substantiate that extensively from his own words. Uh, but then there are these other sort of strands in his uh, strains of thought that emerge. Um, from whence the the, the more pastoral approach to doctrine by Gallier, Theobald, and and others try to find aid and comfort. Um, Thank you. Faith and Reason podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.